1: Welcome back to The Cold War Show. A uh, bit of a special episode today. I have a guest and I'm Sands Ray Harris, only because I was recording this interview in the evening of my time in Brisbane and uh, it would have been like 2am in the morning for Ray. So uh, my guest today, very excited to have this man on, Dove Levin. He's Assistant Professor the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, formerly of Carnegie Mellon, and he had done some pretty major research in the last couple of years on what he refers to as partisan electoral intervention by the great powers. His research particularly looked at the period of 1946 through to the year 2000, and I'd uh, read a couple of articles about his research over the last couple of months, uh, and uh, reached out to him and asked him to come on and, and help me understand what the research was about, what he discovered, and what his conclusions were from the research. So without further ado, here's me chatting with Dove Levin. Like a lot of Cold War buffs, uh, you know, I think I was shocked by the outrage expressed uh, by my American friends and in the American media over the last couple of years when they learned that Russia had tried to influence their 2016 presidential election because I was well aware of the history of the US and Russia and the Soviet Union in trying to influence elections around the world since the end of World War II. But you've actually studied the subject more than most of us. A few years ago you introduced something called the Partisan Electoral Intervention by the Great Powers, the P-E-I-G. Do you have, do you have a, p- a favourite way of pronouncing that acronym? P- p- PEIG. Pig. Can you explain for us what that is, the pig.
0: Well, it's a data set of all the uh, American and Soviet or Russian uh, attempts between 1946 and 2000 to determine other countries' election results through various covert and overt methods, you know. So it's basically a data set that collects all ty- all of interventions of this kind during this period by the United States and Russia, such as occurred during the 2016 US elections by Russia.
1: And what prompted you to do this research? Well, it
0: uh, began basically as my uh, PhD dissertation. You know, I was a graduate student at uh, UCLA, um, and I was looking for a dissertation topic. And uh, I'm I'm also a history buff, so I happened to uh, come across, I don't remember how, in the library at the time of UCLA about a new book on uh, Italian uh, history, and, I, and they, I was just curious, I, take, I took a look, and it was talking there about the American intervention in the 1948 Italian elections. So I read it, it said, oh, this sounds very interesting. It looks like an interesting dissertation topic. So I began, you know, taking a look, saw that there's very little uh, research on it. And then my uh, advisor said, this would, it sounds like an interesting idea, go with it. So I began doing research on this topic and as the same goals. I didn't look back since.
1: For a start, were you shocked when you started to do the research that there wasn't a great body of research already that had been done on this?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I was expecting, you know, as uh, as many academics, you expect that uh, on every topic you're going to find someone who wrote on it in the past. Mm. But so when I began searching, I was sure uh, that you know I'd find you know gazillion articles by, uh, by uh, other scholars who would uh, basically uh, studied a lot of this phenomena. But I actually found that there was very little. That is. Uh, there was basically, I uh, could literally count it on the palm of my hand and I'd still have uh, enough, a few extra fingers. <laughs> so... Um... I was myself surprised that there was very little research on it and uh, that was one reason I decided to uh, do it. You know, um, you don't uh, don't always have an opportunity in my uh, field to go into a topic which uh, has been so little studied and to see a way that it could
1: actually be studied. Mm. And do you have a theory on why it hadn't been studied in detail before you came along?
0: Well, um, I have uh, two guesses about it. One reason is that, as I discovered when I was collecting this data set, is that about two-thirds of these interventions are covert or secret. and the covert And the covert side of international relations is something that is... Stuff which is uh, for natural, re- re- for obvious reasons, really hard for us to collect data on because you know um, intelligence agencies usually do not, you know, just co- let us, you know, go into their uh, archives and just take a look. Mm. So my guess is is that uh, the fact that so much of it was covert discouraged many scholars in the past to uh, study it, so to speak. Uh, the other reason is that the sink had, you know, before 2016 in the United States frequently was of relatively low visibility. That is, it was well known in many other countries that this stuff is occurring. But in the United States, um, it wasn't very well known. It wasn't, it didn't occur recently in an overt manner inside the United States itself. It happened a few cases covertly, but not in an overt manner. So other scholars were simply not aware that this stuff is really common. You know, they knew about the case or two, but they didn't know um, how common it is and that this stuff is worthwhile as a separate topic of research.
1: I mean, during the entire Cold War period, from the end of World War II through to the fall of the Soviet Union, there was constant talk in the United States about the Soviets trying to uh, undermine their political system, I would have thought that it was quite a... a big topic for for many decades
0: well i mean um, there was in the 70s a small uh, burst of interest because of the whole uh, discovery of uh, a lot of the behavior of the cia in other ways you know the assassination plots the covert coup d'etats so among that that also had some uh, temporary burst of interest But uh, in the American view, you know, um, occasionally it was discovered that this stuff happened. It didn't seem to matter very much. It seemed to be relatively rare in the American case. So uh, many people uh, were not aware that it is, you know, um, common enough to be uh, studied as a separate phenomenon. I mean, that's at least my assumption. And others who thought that it could be an interesting topic I thought that, you know, that a lot of this stuff was still covert and that it could not collect enough data on it to do something of interest. And uh, Mm -hmm. given how much hard work it was to collect this data, I completely understand why some people thought that, you know, um, or, or believe that, you know, the requirements to study it in an effective manner may not have been there, say, 30 or 40 years ago.
1: Mm. And And how did you collect the data in the end?
0: Well, uh, basically, it was a whole year of uh, hard work uh, doing my dissertation. And I used for it uh, multiple sources. I mean, uh, one source were these uh, congressional investigations I mentioned, you know, in uh, the 1970s and the various uh, deeds of the CIA, so to speak.
1: The Church Committee?
0: Yeah, the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, and then later in the 80s and the 90s, these occasional committees, you know, like committees that studied Iran Contra mm-hmm. or other committees who studied other events. Uh, mm. And occasionally they talked also about these type of interventions as part of the wider investigation. Mm -hmm. You know, that was one good source. Mm -hmm. Another source were various declassified internal CIA histories, which occasionally mentioned such interventions. Mm -hmm. Another source were these reliable, you know, um, reliable histories of these covert operations as done, you know, by scholars of intelligence studies, you know, where... Another source were these things on, you know, like memoirs of CIA agents, because, you know, they were very secretive and hush-hush while they were, you know, um, in a uniform or, you know, in, while working for the CIA. But many of them, when they retired afterwards, you know, um, wrote their memoirs and then they many times, you know, spilled all of the stuff they did, you know. And I personally saved country X from communism. Here, let me tell you how I did it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, so, and likewise, you know, the United States government has these uh, declassified over time documents, uh, and it has these volumes called the FUS. So, um, basically, uh, you could, I could go through those documents and check them out. Mm-hmm. So, that together, you know, with uh, keyword search for newspapers for the more public overt ones helped me uh, find a lot of the stuff for the American uh, interventions. For the Soviet or Russian ones, one major source, except you know, for those I described here, were the Metonkin archives. Basically, these uh, basically there was this guy who was a car- archivist in the KGB, a guy called Vasily Mitonkin, mm-hmm. who worked in the archives for twelve years and collected over twelve years, basically every day, he wrote summaries of every document he came across in the KGB archives. And then when the Cold War was over, you ran off with all of these summaries to the UK and then published it in the ninth, late 90s in two fat volumes. So those two things together gave us you know, a pretty good idea of, uh, of uh, what has actually been happening by these two powers, both covertly and overtly.
1: Mm. And so let's talk about the interventions that you uncovered. How many interventions did you arrive at in the period? And let's talk about the period that you studied. It was from where, 1946 to what, 2000?
0: Yeah. Um, so that period was based, yeah, that was the period. And during that period, there were 117 such interventions, 81 by the United States. 36 by Russia. And to just to give it an idea within, you know, the context of the number of elections we are talking about, that came to about uh, intervention in one out of every nine competitive executive level elections
1: during that period. Wow. 117 elections around the world between the end of World War II and the year 2000.
0: And- Just to correct you, it's not 117 elections. It's a bit small. I think it's about 111 elections. uh, Oh, okay. Because sometimes both sides intervene in the same election. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. Now, just to be clear, that number, though, doesn't include coup d'etat or attempts at regime change, it's just actual interference in elections.
0: Right. This is only when great powers are intervening in an election and attempt to determine who wins it um, in one way or the other. It does not include the um, various covert coup d'etats or, you know, those uh, overt, you know, regime change operations. So those type of stuff are not included. and I did not, And they are not included in that number, so to speak.
1: So assassination attempts on Fidel Castro, or the Bay of Pigs, or the overthrow of Mossadegh in Iran—that that sort of thing isn't included in that number.
0: Right, uh, those type of stuff are not included, and uh, what's the name called because they were not designed to interfere in an election. You know, in the case mm-hmm. of uh, Fidel Castro, there was no—you know—competitive election to interfere in. And in the case of Mossadegh, they decided to remove him or them um, through—you know—a covert coup d'état.
1: Mm. So let me ask you: In terms of international law, these, uh, this interference, is it is it legal? Is it illegal? How how to mo- is it is it a divide? Some of them are legal and some of them aren't. How do you see them fitting in?
0: Well, I mean, basically, under international law in general, the idea is that you know interference is a. By countries in other countries' affairs is uh, illegal, with a few very narrow exceptions, like you know, for example, uh, humanitarian interventions to stop you know crimes against humanity. So um, basically, these interventions are in theory uh, illegal. In practice, um, the issue of whether it's legal or not under international law rarely bothered states when they were thinking about whether to meddle in this manner or not.
1: Mm. So uh, take me through the US versus Russia split there. Did you say it was 81 by the United States?
0: Yeah. 81 of them were by the United States. 36 of them were by the Soviet Union or
1: Russia. Right. So the United States, (laughs) more than twice the number. Um, And how many... What's the basic split between overt versus covert in, in the ones that you studied?
0: Well, about one third of them are overt or public. In other words, the average person in that country knows about those acts and knows the involvement of the foreign power in them before the elections, and about two thirds of them are covert. In other words, either the acts are not known to the public in question, or they do not know um, the connection of the of that fan power to those apps, you know, and suddenly news appeared that, that shows, you know, one of the candidates to be a terrible and awful person, but no one knows where it came from or something like that.
1: Mm. Um, which tends to be the more effective in, in, uh, versus overt versus covert
0: well, um, overall, actually, the overt, when it comes, you know, to uh, things like, for example, who, you know, moves the needle more, the overt ones actually uh, are more effective. In other words, they are more likely to change the result. And the, and I find in uh, one of my pieces where I did a statistical analysis on, you know, that... Uh, data set i mentioned PIG, that an average in um, overt interventions increase the vote of the side that the great power is trying to assist by 3% more than the covert ones hmm. and the underlying logic is that they are basically uh, when you are doing the overt ones you are trying you know to shape the preferences of the voters directly you know, basically, you could call it a way of outbidding game. Um, the local leaders, you know, one leader says, you know, if you vote for me, there's gonna you're gonna have a chicken in every pot. If the other one says, if you vote for me, there'll be two chickens in every pot. And the great power comes in with its resource advantage and says, you know, if you vote for this guy, everyone's going to get two chickens in every pot and a brand new car. So um, as a result, they are more able to move the needle than covert interventions, which, you know, um, usually are trying to affect voters' behavior indirectly. You know, you give money to one of the sides and they can then, you know, publish more ads and hopefully, you know, cause people to change their mind and things like that.
1: You know, that it strikes me as counterintuitive. You would think, like, if we take the United States, for example, in 2016, if Russia had been more overt in trying to in- influence the election, you would expect that Americans would be up in arms and would uh, deliberately try and vote against what the foreign power was trying to achieve. But that sounds like... In that period, the the Cold War period, that uh, wasn't the case more often than not.
0: Well, uh, the basic idea here is that usually in these type of interventions, they involve cooperation between the foreign power and the side that is being assisted. So in cases where what you are talking about, you know, things like backlash, for example, can occur, usually the foreign power doesn't do an overt intervention, it only does a covert one. So they only do it overtly in situations where they're pretty sure that, you know, there will not be, you know, that type of reaction that you are mentioning.
1: Hmm. Can you give us any examples of one of the overt interventions that was successful?
0: Well, uh, for example, uh, what's the name you call it? uh, One example is uh, the American intervention in Italy in uh, 1948 that I mentioned earlier. That is, you know, the United States basically uh, uh, gave uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in in foreign aid to Italy on the one hand. And on the other hand, you know, made threats that if uh, the communists, which didn't want to win, would win, and it would basically cut all of that aid. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, one example of an overt and pretty successful intervention.
1: Yeah, on, on our show, we've uh, on our Cold War series, we've talked at length about the Marshall Plan and uh, I've tr- tried to give the perspective that I've developed over the years of studying the Marshall Plan that as opposed to the way I think it's normally viewed by a lot of Americans and, and other people around the West as a great act of charity on behalf of the Americans to Western Europe, it was really little more than uh, them buying the political and economic loyalty of those countries. And now that's not to say it was a bad thing or they shouldn't have or it had a positive or a negative outcome, but it was really buying the, uh, uh, buying Western Europe out of the uh, hands of communist parties in those countries.
0: Well, I mean, it was, part of it, of course, did have, you know, a motive of, you know, people were seeing, you know, that the Europe- Western Europeans were in a bad economic situation, but you certainly had, it wasn't, you know, pure altruism. It didn't, you know, it was... The United, the, the American public, and the and the U.S. government were really afraid that you know if uh, the economic situation in Western Europe would not uh, become any better, then uh, you know um, then there would be more support for communism, and as a result, the communist parties would be able to come to power in those in Western Europe through you know uh, legal or illegal means. So certainly, it was you know one reason was you know to create the background. The conditions that would make it uh, easier for non-communist uh, parties um, to win elections, and you know, for uh, non-communist regimes to have you know uh, public support in Western Europe. So it was. So one component was certainly that, so to speak. In other words, to make it to make the world, make Western Europe safer for. Uh, for uh, regimes which are capitalistic, democratic and, if possible, friendlier to the United States.
1: And more likely to trade with the United States rather than trading with the Soviet bloc.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was, of course, another motive, yeah. The United States wanted to uh, make sure uh, that, you know, it would have... uh, that, you know, that it would have uh, markets around the world and in a form of, you know, um, long-term thinking, they understood that in order to have markets, they need to have uh, prosperous economies and some of their allies because if not, their allies couldn't buy from them any products.
1: Mm. So what about uh, covert interference? Do you have any good examples of that you can talk us through?
0: Well, uh, I mean, uh, what's the name you call it? Um, One classic example is the American intervention in uh, Chile in uh, 1964. And the United States was really worried that uh, the then uh, leader of the of the socialist Salvador Allende, if he would come to power, would turn Chile into a communist country and, you know, um, move it towards uh, the Soviet bloc. So the United States did a a pretty heavy covert intervention to stop it. So, for example, they gave something around at least $3 million in that time's money, which is today something like 30 or 40 million dollars in today's money um, to uh, the Chilean Christian Democrats and its leader, Eduardo Frey, for their campaign. They sent experts in campaigning to, to, their, to the Christian Democrats campaign who produced for them various ma- campaigning materials, you know, um, which were designed, you know, that were more effective and they hoped, you know, would be designed to make sure that they would get more voters. They also, you know, you um, Helped, you know, um, alleviate secretly the various economic problems in Chile. Like, for example, you know, um, we know that at some point it even involved smuggling of meat into Chile when uh, they were suffering from a meat shortage. Because, you know, the more people would be in a in a good mood, the more likely they would be um, in that view to vote for to vote against uh, the communists. And uh, thanks to many of these measures, uh, as a result, uh, Eduardo Frey won
1: that election in 1964. Mm. And what happened to uh, Allende?
0: Well, uh, I mean, uh, six years later, he won the elections. And despite an American intervention, this was thanks to a Soviet intervention in his regard. Then he became the president of Chile for three years. And in the meantime, after they did not succeed in uh, preventing him from coming to power for uh, meddling in an election, the U.S. government decided instead to uh, basically uh, remove him for a coup d'etat. And as a... As Henry Kissinger described, uh, basically, um, they they cannot permit, you know, food uh, misbehavior of people for a country to go communist. So they did various measures to encourage, you know, demonstrations inside Chile and to encourage a coup d'etat, such as, you know, harming the Chilean economy, which eventually three years later led to the coup d'etat by Augusto Pinochet.
1: And then uh Allende had a the fairly controversial death. I think it was uh claimed to be suicide,
0: yeah, I am. Um- from the, our best of knowledge, it was indeed suicide. In other words, that he basically thought it was about to be imprisoned by the military, and he was not, and he knew exactly what could be the suffering they could be doing towards him. So he decided to uh, commit suicide, but not so that seemed to have been, you know, quote unquote, natural. But the circumstances that led to the suicide were US-induced, let's call it this way.
1: So uh, let's talk about the most common methods. You've mentioned a couple there of this interference. So there's basically rocking up with briefcases full of cash to give to the side that you favour, and I guess that happens whether it's overt or covert interference. Uh, what, what are some of the other most common methods you found in your research?
0: Well, uh, you're right. Um, covert, fun- covert funding is one of the most uh, common methods. Another common method is public and specific threats or promises by an official representative of the intervening country, you know, a few days or weeks before the elections, a representative of the United States or the Soviet Union would come up and say, you know, if you vote for this guy, you will suffer. Or, you know, if you vote for this guy, we will give you more foreign aid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it also involves things like, for example, training locals on the side that you preferred in advance campaigning and getting out the vote techniques. you know how to mobilize voters better, and it included also things like, for example, the covert dissemination of scandalous exposés or disinformation and rival candidates, Mm -hmm. which was Uh one of the major methods used by Russia in 2016, what I call, quote-unquote, dirty tricks. Mm -hmm. It also includes sometimes, you know, designing for the preferred side, you know, campaigning materials or sending to them campaign experts and tell them, you know, organized campaign strategy, you know, polling advice, polling expertise, things like that. It sometimes includes, you know, seeing like, for example, the sudden new provision of a foreign aid or, you know, a significant increase in foreign aid right before the elections or other forms of material assistance. And it sometimes also includes, you know, the withdrawal of aid or other kinds of assistance right before the elections. So mm. those, are some of, those are the major
1: methods used for this purpose. Mm. Uh, what, what, do you include economic sanctions as part of this or is that more in terms of regime change?
0: Well, again, the question is when they are done and what is their purpose. If, mm. for example, a sanction is imposed two weeks before an election and it's uh, clear that it was done for this purpose, it would count. If those sanctions were imposed three years earlier for unrelated reasons, it wouldn't count.
1: Unless they're trying to cripple the economy, so the next time there's an election, the people uh, know who to vote for. I'm thinking, in a modern context, Venezuela, for example.
0: Well, I mean, usually when it comes to the imposition of uh, sanctions or other measures like that, what I find is the decision makers don't think that far ahead. You know, if they are thinking, if they are imposing sanctions today on a democratic country, they don't wait for the next two or three years down the line for it to have an effect on the election. They're hoping to have a more immediate-term effect. And um, as for the case of Venezuela, while we don't know exactly how much the U.S. was uh, involved in that particular case, I mean, under Hugo Chavez, what's name you call it, we are not sure. Under Trump, clearly that is, you know, part of a full-scale, you know, Regime change attempt, which is designed, you know, to uh, either have mass demonstrations bring down, uh, and you know, the current leader of Venezuela, or you have a coup d'état, so to speak. Mm. So, if sanctions are imposed, they are either. Done for unrelated reasons, or done for other ways of regime change, like the United States is now doing in Venezuela against Maduro. You know, the sanctions aren't designed to get Maduro to lose the next election; like they are designed to uh, cause you know the Venezuelan military to overthrow him, or mass demonstrations in uh, Venezuela to basically force him to leave power.
1: Mm, mm. When you talk about these numbers Dove like uh, eighty-one interventions by the United States, and you're talking about some of the the meth- methods that they commonly use, like spreading disinformation, it, it it's always frustrated me when talking to my American historian friends, and we talk about countries like uh, Cuba under Castro uh, or Venezuela under Hugo Chavez. And you know when when those guys claim that uh, the Americans are trying to destabilise their country politically and economically through influencing the media, and my American friends go, "Oh, that's just that's ridiculous. It's conspiracy theories." When from your research, that is actually a, a fairly standard, standard modus operandi for. CIA involvement in destabilizing these elections—is that true?
0: Well, I mean, in the case of Cuba, it never—it didn't have elections under Castro, so it's uh, not exactly. Uh applicable, although the United States government did in the 60s and 70s try to overthrow him. And we know of an attempt to overthrow him as late as 2011. So certainly there has been attempts, although non-electoral ones, on and off to uh, remove him. As for Hugo Chavez, there have been some uh, accusations in this regard by him that uh, the United States has tried to to intervene in Venezuelan elections for this purpose. Uh, for my knowledge in 98 and in 2000, that wasn't the case. It is possible it was in later elections, but I haven't had an opportunity to check it out yet. So uh, I another few years after I uh, expand my data set, I'll be able to give you a better answer about uh, Venezuela.
1: Yeah, but my point was that historically uh, that is a tactic that the United States and the Soviet Union would both use in countries where they wanted to influence an election as well as a coup or regime change was uh, spreading disinformation, fake news in the local media of those countries.
0: Yes, I mean, that was one method used by both interveners in mm. order to try to affect some elections. Yes, mm-hmm. that is one common tool that has been used for the purpose of effecting, affecting elections. And we know that both the United States and the Soviet Union or Russia have been using that method in some elections in which they have interfered in the past. Naturally, that should not be seen, as you know, in any way, shape and form, meaning that, you know, uh, there as some more justification for, you know, um, what Putin did in the United States in 2016, it's just saying that they did use it in the past, so
1: to speak. And the United States used it in Russia itself as recently as 1996, didn't it, to support the election of Boris Yeltsin or re-election of Boris Yeltsin?
0: Well, they did intervene in uh, Russia, although not food dirty tricks. They did use, they did, however, intervene pretty heavily there to in, to help him. And the logic there was basically that uh, the United States was really, really worried that uh, the communist under Zhdanov would win the election and then, you know, turn back the clock. Another very good reason to worry about it because Yeltsin's first term was uh, not very good for Russia economically or otherwise. You know, life expectancy of the average Russian do- dropped by about 10 years. You know, um, it was stuck in a bloody civil war in Chechnya. And you know his um, and there's you know we have polling from Russia which was at the time pretty reliable, showing that that Yeltsin was down to uh, about six percent or something like that. And the alternative except for him and the communists was also not very nice. I mean, uh, one of his main competitors was a guy who was a certified lunatic. I mean, he was literally released from a uh, uh, mental asylum and was talking about taking back Alaska from the United States. So um, the United States basically intervened in two major ways. It first uh, gave uh, him major concessions for the IMF and basically open, openly persuaded the IMF to give Russia a very big loan of about $10.2 billion. to it's about $15 billion, um, although he was not eligible under IMF criteria at the time for such a big loan. And about $1.3 billion of this loan arrived before the Russian election, which Yeltsin then used for pork-barreling. You know, he paid the, you know, government official salaries, which were not paid in ages. You know, he gave various goodies. So that was very helpful for him. And uh, likewise, they also sent uh, some uh, American spin doctors to help with the campaign, you know, giving him campaign advice, plotting strategy, running focusing group, improving his messages and so forth. So, though, so they basically intervened pretty heavily for him to make sure that he would win, which led them, you know, if he was uh, polling around 6 percent before the intervention, by the end he was he, was, he had enough uh, vote to actually uh, uh, go up to the second round was about, I think, 33 percent. So they intervened pretty heavily in the 1996 Russian election for uh, Boris Yeltsin through various methods, although not uh, dirty tricks.
1: And that was during Bill Clinton's administration. Right. And then Boris Yeltsin pretty much handpicked Vladimir Putin as his successor. So you would think that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin would owe the Clintons a favour?
0: Yes. Um, act- <laughs> yes. Uh, basically, uh, Putin uh, owes him is coming to power to the fact that Yeltsin uh, chose him to become uh, the next president of Russia. Yes.
1: And he was able to do that because Bill Clinton helped him win the uh, presidency. Right.
0: Those are what is called a completely unexpected, sir, uh result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: That's the problem with interventions. You never really know what's gonna, what the uh, long-term impact of your intervention is going to be. So, in your experience, uh, Dove, do you do you think the level of US interference in these foreign elections is generally? well-known today by the general public in the United States uh, in in the media that you've done over the last couple of years. What kind of reception do you get? Are people sceptical of these numbers or are they blasé about them?
0: Well, I mean, I've done uh, multiple uh, media interviews to various uh, American media bodies, Many Americans are simply not aware of this record. You know, they know that they were in the past a few cases like that, you know, like Chile of 1970 or Italy in 1948, but they are not aware of the wider record, which is, again, not their fault, given that until very recently, there was very little academic research on that topic. And, you know, most of them, uh, you know, uh, basically you know uh, take that uh, take that in stride and uh, you know uh, and uh, see that as you know uh, interesting information to learn about that particular issue.
1: Mm. And did your study did your research get a lot of coverage in the US media and academia?
0: It got some uh, coverage in the American media and in academia. I, I did a, a multiple interviews in an attempt, you know, to inform people, and I hope that now they are more informed. I cannot; I need to do a poll to know for sure, but I hope they are a bit more informed. I also know I got a significant interest in academia, and hopefully this is now leading to more research on this uh, very important topic.
1: Mm. And what about the response to your research in Russia?
0: Well, um, what's the name you call it? Um, I, uh, I, my understanding is is that uh, Russia, that uh, some Russian media organs decided to uh, use my research as uh, evidence that supposedly it was a okay for Putin to do whatever he wants, which I am, um, you know, see it as an unacceptable uh, and. Use and actually a misuse of uh, my research, so to speak, because as I'm saying, uh, you know, um, this sucker does not, in my opinion, give, you know, any uh, justification for Vladimir Putin, so to speak, or for his behavior in 2016. So to my best of knowledge, they have uh, multiple times uh, tried to use it as, in my opinion, an unjustified justification for uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, own uh, behavior in 2016.
1: Is there any reason to believe, Dove, that this kind of partisan electoral intervention by these great powers has diminished in recent decades? Or is it still going on at the same rate as it was during the Cold War?
0: Well, um, to the, my best of knowledge, in the first decade of the 1990s, of the post Cold War, I don't see a a Major decrease, so to speak. I mean, there was a decrease on the Russian side, but that was to a large extent because you know Russia was on the verge of bankruptcy for much of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. In the American case, the level of interventions more or less stabilized. Mm-hmm. And for my knowledge, in later decades, you know that they uh, are now uh, busy, you know, uh, which I'm hoping soon to start collecting data on in a more systematic way. From the cases I do know, there doesn't seem to be a major decrease. That is, it seemed that more or less it was continuing in more or less the same level as in the past. There was no, you know, major decline. It's just that people were not uh, noticing it because it was, you know, many times occurring in countries which are not, you know, the center of international media attention in many cases.
1: Mm. Would it be safe to assume that in the research that you've done, as a, as it relates to intervention by the United States, that it doesn't really matter whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans that control the White House. This in, the, the levels of intervention is pretty much consistent.
0: Yes. I do not see evidence that uh, Democrats or Republicans are more likely to intervene in elections than the other party. It more or less is is about the same rate of intervention uh, over time, regardless of who is president. The main Mm. factor seems to be the level of threat, you know, how much, how threatening is the international environment and how many leaders in countries which are democratic or relatively democratic are seen as threats to the US government for one reason or another.
1: So what conclusions or insights have you derived from your research, Dove?
0: Well, uh, I I think I think one of the conclusions is first, as I noted, that this stuff is very common, and that it is uh, something which has occurred for many years, and that we have no evidence that it's declining or will not continue in the future. So twenty six what happened in 2016 is by no means the last one, and it will probably continue and even increase in the future, given that you know these days something like half of the world has you know relatively competitive elections to elect their leaders, so to speak. And, you know, we're talking about both, you know, democratic countries like the United States, as well as, you know, semi-democracies, or what are known today as competitive or sort of regime, like for example, Iran, so to speak. Um, So that's one thing. The other conclusion I found is that these things have many times pretty negative effects On their targets That is, you know um, I find in research of mine That uh, covert interventions of these kinds Increase the chances Of a democratic breakdown in the target By about a factor of Two and a half to eight times Mm. And that the overt ones Increase the chances of Domestic terrorism erupting in that Target by about 153% (laughs) As well as increasing The chances of a new domestic terrorist Group uh, arising By about 10.5%. Ten and a half percent. So I would just say that when it comes to these interventions, if they they should have on them, you know, like on cigarettes, you know, warning. This type of intervent, this type of intervention <laughs> is bad for your country's health, so to speak. So um, these things are pretty. So what I, so another conclusion, minded that this stuff is in many cases pretty harmful for the country in question, so to speak.
1: So uh, we we have to assume that the people. Who are executing the interventions know uh, or can you know know from experience that it's likely to have a very negative effect on the target countries, and yet they do it anyway. Why would that be?
0: Well, I'm not sure that they even know it. I mean, what we from what I've been able to find because naturally you no, know, when it comes to, um, these type of documents that are extremely hard to locate. There has been very little attempts by uh, intelligence agencies to analyze the long-term or short-term effects of their own uh, intervention, so to speak. I mean, uh, to my knowledge, there has been very little attempts to analyze it. And a lot of it depends on, you know, what you could call famous cases or anecdotes. So, it's, so you know, the American intervention in 1948 in Italy, was a successful, the communists lost At the time the communist party Was rel- was quite authoritarian So we can say that The fact that they lost probably prevented Italy from becoming a dictatorship So to speak So many people took from that as evidence You know oh this is something that can help Democracy because you know in that case We can probably say that you know this Prevented uh, co- uh, Collapse of uh, Italian democracy So to speak So in many cases um, they didn't do an analysis. They basically know, to, you know, um, based it on anecdotes and famous cases. So many times they did not know about the effects. In some cases, they did know about some of the effects. You know, like, for example, uh, some of it's from some documents, they were clearly aware that some of these covert operations are not exactly healthy for democracy, but they were not aware of their magnitude or how frequent are these negative effects, so to speak. So, in many cases, they were either they simply did not um, analyze it to find the, what were the actual effects in these cases, or assume that you know what happened in one or two very well-known cases was true for everything else.
1: Reminds me of that uh, quote from I think it was Eisenhower that Tim Weiner used for his book on the CIA, A Legacy of Ashes.
0: Well, um, when it comes to um, these interventions, that was unfortunately for, for many of these cases uh, the long-term result in some of these countries, yeah.
1: Dov, thank you very much for walking us through that and for taking the, the time and the effort to, to do that research. Uh, good work, and I look forward to seeing what you come out with next.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, hopefully soon I will have uh, more research out that uh, people will be able uh, to do
1: it. Well, there you go, 81 partisan electoral interference cases by the United States between 1946 and 2000. And as Dove says, we have no reason to believe that the incidence of that has declined. 81 over, what is that, uh, 44 years, roughly roughly two a year during that period where the United States interfered in the elections of a country. Russia, Soviet Union, then Russia does it as well. But I, I guess the, the the point I hope you all take out of this is that America is running around and interfere, interfering in the elections of countries around the world. And You may choose to justify that. You may say, well, that's a good thing because X, Y, and Z, but uh, it's illegal, as Dove pointed out. And uh, while it may not provide legal justification for Russia's alleged activities in the American 2016 election, uh, at least I hope you take away from this that this is par for the course It's not that Russia are the bad guys trying to interfere in America's election. America does it twice as often as Russia and, in fact, has done it in Russia as well as recently, uh, that we know of as recently as 1996 and and probably several times since then as well. Even since I recorded this interview with Dove last week, there's been the announcement that there's been a coup in Bolivia. Uh, The president there, Eva Morales, has been kicked out by a right-wing party And this being Latin America and being a right-wing party, it's safe to assume that there's a high probability that the CIA was involved in there to some extent. And uh, we'll probably be looking at that on the show next week. So there you go. hope you enjoyed that. You can uh, check out Dove Levin online. You can follow him at Twitter at Dove underscore Levin. D-O-V underscore L-E-V-I-N. I'll be back next week with a regular episode with Ray. Have a good week.
0: An iron curtain has descended across the continent.